Hey y'all, I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Liz Gray. And this is Strictly Sapphic. A podcast about sapphic art. And your mom. Always your mom. Get into it. Welcome back to Strictly Sapphic, everyone. And Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Um, This is Liz for now, because (laughs) quick little disclosure about this intro. Um, We are traveling currently and needed to record this intro and we have one mic. So you're going to hear from me and I'm going to pass it over to Macon and then we'll get into what y'all are really here for, um, which is to hear from our amazing guest, Um, I just wanted to quickly say thank you so much for an amazing 2023. It was our launch year. Um, We really could not have expected the warm welcome that y'all gave us um, and the amazing feedback that we've received. We are super excited for all of the stuff that we have in store for 2024. And I just want to say a couple things about our amazing guests really quickly before I pass the mic. Carrie Bird, as you all know, if you already follow her on socials, is incredible. She has an amazing brain and I am obsessed with her so much so that I um, had an epiphany the other day. Macon was talking to a couple author friends of ours, um, asking them how much they consider and think about audience like as they're creating story and I was like well you know just listening in this question doesn't pertain to me I'm not an author but I realized that this podcast is very much my main art form these days and I do in fact uh, consider my audience and that is an audience of one and every damn episode as I'm editing it Um, confession time I think what will Carrie think of this episode? Because she's just been an incredible fan of the podcast and support. And I look up to her and respect her so much. So being able to um, interview her and talk about craft and art was so surreal. Um, And if y'all listen to our podcast while in the car. Great. Love it. Love this for you. I would also maybe consider re-listening to this one when you um, can safely break out a pen and paper because Carrie Bird is going to take you to school. Um, She is a factual professor and you're going to learn so much. Not going to lie. Every now and then I will have a random thought and be like, what would Carrie think about this? And I have a mental notepad of things that I would love to continue to discuss with her. So I don't know, maybe we will bring her back as a regular guest, an expert on all of the things y'all will hear what I'm what I mean, what I'm talking about when we get into this. Macon, take it away. Happy 2024, y'all. I am so excited for this year, and I am so excited to share this conversation with Carrie with y'all. I loved every minute of it. She is so kind and thoughtful and generous, and it goes without saying brilliant. And I think you guys are really going to be blown away by 
this conversation, by how much we are able to cover, by the power of art, all of those things that make this podcast special, you are going to see on Blazing Display. Also, to echo Liz, I am so thankful for y'all and thankful for this podcast, but I think we've said enough. I think it's time to let these fine people learn from the real professor. So let's get into it, yeah. y'all welcome to the pod fort welcome back everyone and carrie welcome to the pod fort carrie hey thank you so much for having me oh man we are so excited to have you on we were like brainstorming guests and you were on the list and then you you dropped your author website i did and liz and i were looking and we were like we got to get her on Mm -hmm. and then i was like immediately like okay okay i'll 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 dm her I feel like multiple times I was like, so where are we at with Carrie? Yeah. <laughs> That's so flattering. I am so excited to be on this podcast, truly. Um, and thank you for being a fan of it. Like <laughs> you've reposted some stuff and then I was reading your blog and I was like, oh, she references us. I did. I, I totally, did. I fangirled. Oh, of course. Now y'all have kept me company now on multiple drives on both coasts of the United States. So Ooh. yeah, no, I am legitimately a huge fan of this podcast. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. We are again, huge fans. And so I'm going to say this at the top and I'm going to say it throughout and then I'm going to say it at the end. If y'all aren't following Carrie on social media, y'all need to do it. Bird rights, get into it. One of my favorite Twitter follows ever. But blue skies, kicking it, Instagram, all of it. So social media, get on it. Start right now. I'll mention it again. I'll reference tweets. It's going to be a whole thing. Yeah, I feel like I learn a lot, but I have fun doing it, which wasn't always the case growing <laughs> up in school. That is such a huge compliment. Thank you. Um, all right. So before we dig very deep in, and boy, do we both have pages of notes, um, why don't you let everybody know who you are, what you do, what kind of artist you are, that whole spiel. Sure. So I'm Carrie. Uh, My pronouns are she and her. I am a California transplant who now lives just outside Philadelphia. Uh, Those places are really a huge part of my self-identity. They both really Mm -hmm. inform who I am. So I always like to lead with where I'm from and where I live. I'm also an English professor. Anyone who follows me on social media knows that, I think, at this point. Uh, I love my job. I love it so much. I I'm lucky enough to get paid to talk with the most amazing college students on a regular basis about topics that fascinate me, uh, especially queerness. That's not only what I teach, but that's a lot of what I teach. So I love that I get to do that for both of my jobs, really, just talk about queerness with fascinating people. I want to go. Can you like go to a class (laughs) just to sit in? Yeah, you can audit a class. You absolutely can. college terms. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so... Y'all, just so you know, Carrie's dropping her her debut novel. It's a sapphic romance novel called Loser of the Year in summer 2024. Do you have an exact date yet, or is it just summer 2024? I have distance. a more I have a more precise date than that, but uh, my publisher has asked me to maybe keep that under wraps for right now. Okay, perfect. So, being a college professor and then going into actually writing, um, a question I had just like off the bat is: Are you able to? Are you writing from the lens of a college professor or are you writing from the lens of 
carry. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. It's a great question. Also, if I say that's a great question a lot during this podcast, uh, please, you know, don't mind me. That's just like a habit I have as a professor. I I do the exact same thing because I taught college for a while and it was like, let me validate you that that's a good question so that you keep talking to me. Um, And I do the same Uh thing because I worked a lot of call centers and that's part of acknowledging the number. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's all about making people feel heard and validated and safe. Right. So yeah, totally. So, but that is a fantastic question. So I'd say I bring bring both aspects of that to my writing. I can't really ever leave behind the college professor, right? The academic, because it's it's so embedded in who I am. It's so much a part of how I read, how I write, how I approach everything having to do with language. But Carrie is very much present um, in my book. This book is a real, it's really personal in a way that I didn't imagine it would be when I started out writing it. There's a lot from my own background, my own experiences that ended up really informing not just the characters, but the setting and the conflicts. Um, And so it's absolutely so much more deeply personal than um, anything that I've written academically, although sometimes academic writing can kind of verge into the personal, right? But but fiction writing is very much, at least in my experience, it's very much drawing on some really deep, you know, profound and sometimes painful stuff for myself. Absolutely. And this is your first fiction. Correct. So this is my my first any my the first fictional book I've published. Okay. So, yeah. so there's some yeah. secret ones hidden somewhere. I, I've written a lot. I've written fan fiction. I have written mm. stuff for my wife, um, just things that are private and that or or that aren't, you know, don't fall under the lens of necessarily of uh, something that I publish professionally. Um, right. So I've written a lot. But yes, this is the first time I've written anything that is fiction that will be published as a novel. So... As someone who also very recently just dropped their first fic- real, like, long fiction in the world, um, can you talk us a little bit about that experience for you? What it was? What made you finally decide, okay, this is the one? Why this novel? All of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Can you kind of go into that? Absolutely. Um, so the whole process of this book came about because I was stuck writing my academic book. Right? I have this book that I have to write. Um, I'm, I'm a tenured professor, but I eventually want to become a full professor. And in order to do that, I have to publish an academic book. And that's been in the works for quite a while. And so last summer, I was just really stymied. I, I was stuck. I was creatively just very stagnant. And my wife said to me, why don't you write a book? And my first reaction was, another book? Like, I'm already writing a book. I don't need to write two books. And she said, no, why don't you write a romance novel? And I thought about it. And then the idea for Loser of the Year just came to me. It came to me on a platter. Um, it was right there. The characters were there. Their voices were there. Um, their conflicts, their wounds, like what they weren't addressing. It was all just sort of right there for me. Um, and then I wrote it. And uh, my wife has this great description of her writing process that uh, really applies to how I wrote this book as well. Uh, And it goes something like lighting a torch and waving it wildly while running into dry brush to see what catches fire. (laughs) And I really feel like that's what I did with this book, right? I was, I did have a plan. I'm sort of a planter. I guess I'd say that's where, that's where I fall. Uh, but I wasn't sure how I'd get to each of the points that I'd, I'd plan out. So I just kind of ran screaming into my laptop with my torch. So rad. 
So to make everyone extremely jealous, we actually got to read the first chapter of Loser of the Year. Sneak peek. And mm-hmm. it was awesome. And we have thoughts. We have so many thoughts. And questions. And so oh, many boy. questions. Oh, but, boy. Um, as someone who has read exactly one chapter of this novel, I have to tell y'all, this is me talking directly to you, the audience. You need to go pre-order this book. The pre-order link is available. If it's not, you need to like favorite the tweet that this is on so that it's there. So when the pre-order Turn link comes notifications. available. Turn on notifications. Specifically you, for Carrie. For just... <laughs> the, I I have notifications on when you tweet, um, but that's a real thing. But seriously, all this book <laughs> in one chapter in, I am so excited. Well, my initial thoughts are directed at Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my very first thought is, "How dare you? <laughs> How dare you let me get hooked into this?" And it's not out for like eleven months. Eleven months. Yeah, eleven months. That's rude, but <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry, but not really, but a little bit. So why don't you give us your blurb for Loser of the Year? Yeah. Absolutely. So Loser of the Year is about an unsuccessful actress. I, I'd say unsuccessful. She would say failed, mm-hmm. uh, who returns to her Pennsylvania hometown, which is very conservative, to teach theater at the local Catholic high school. Uh, And there she immediately clashes on the very first day with the school's soccer coach, who is extremely arrogant, but also disturbingly attractive, because of course she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's enemies to lovers and it's slow burn, which I know is not this pod's favorite, but I will say it's the kind of slow burn where you're on fire before anyone's actually struck a match. So Mm. take that as you will. It's... You have to wait, but you also don't have to wait. Okay. Yes. I I put that on me for putting out that sticker that says too horny for slow burns. I will and, and it's not that I won't read them. It's like, wow, what does this say about me that I'm getting very frustrated <laughs> in these chapters? And I'm like, just just want to grab their heads and be like, just kiss each other already. I mean, fair. Absolutely. Yeah. So we read the chapter, and these these are my initial thoughts. <clears throat> Jillian is an asshole. Yeah, she is absolutely an asshole, 100%. I also thought that she was giving me, like, some Sue Sylvester vibes, not to out mm-hmm. myself as a glee nerd or a gleek, I think is what they're calling them, um, but hot, right? Good, good. Um, and then, actually... That I just thought of because you brought up that it was in a Catholic school setting. So I went to a Catholic school and I did theater growing up. And I was very much into theater, but the Catholic school was very much into sports. They don't fund Mm. anything, any theater, any arts. But if you're a sports person, we're going to throw all the money at you. So it was a really weird dynamic growing up of like, I don't know, like the thing that I'm super passionate about, like the place I'm going to school could not give two shits about. Um, yeah. So I'd be interested to see if like that kind of dynamic is in this story. Yeah. Yeah. There's you're you're on the right trail. It's interesting. It may not be what you expect, but it's intentionally mm. not exactly what you expect. But you're absolutely right that there is a discrepancy between the athletics and the arts at St. Rita's 100%. Mm, okay. 
And then um, this also made this point that I really like that I really want to talk to you as a jumping off point to get into some other craft things. But it is really hard to set up one of your main characters as a dickhead. Yes. Full dickhead from the beginning. Oh, yeah. I did write that. I said, look at me. I'm like, gold star for me, too. I had it in my notes that I don't read a lot of books where the author isn't afraid to make a main character just extremely unlikable from the get go. So I thought that was cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Jillian is an asshole. Absolutely. She is set up as an asshole. She's abrasive. She's egotistical. But as the book continues, of course, you find out, right, there's more to it. There's a reason why she's so abrasive. There's a reason why she presents herself the way that she does. Uh, I see Jillian as, and I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with this archetype, but I see Jillian as a fire queen. I don't know if you've heard of that. I found about it because of you on Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, So I think the only fire queen that I'm aware of that exists in sapphic romance, and maybe this is not um, the case, but this is the one I know of, is Kai Fisher in Lee Winter's Hotel Queens. So it's not exactly a super popular uh, archetype, and maybe there's a reason for that, but we'll see. Uh, So to establish Jillian, uh, so I'll say, first of all, I, I think most people listening to this are familiar with the concept of the ice queen, right? A character who hides her vulnerability beneath this frozen layer. And the goal, of course, with the ice queen is to melt her. So the fire queen is similar and not. The fire queen hides her vulnerability behind a blaze. She doesn't freeze you out. She will burn you up. She'll burn you up with her words, with her actions. She is a forest fire. She is out of control. So with the fire queen, the goal isn't to put her fire out in the same way that you'd melt the ice queen, right? The fire queen's journey is about learning to use her fire differently. It's about learning to use her fire as a source of heat and light rather than as something destructive. And that's without giving too many spoilers. That's what Jillian's journey in this book is primarily about. Mm. That's really interesting. So you said it's pretty rare in the sapphic romance world, but Is there any other examples just like in media in general that either of you can think of like in TV or movie? I mean, Katniss Everdeen would technically qualify. She just is a person that would rather burn it down than um, live in her own vulnerability. Yeah, that's a Hmm. really interesting example. I like that. I would agree. Uh, That's the one that like the first one that popped into my head. Um, The problem with fire queens or in general is... um, I'm going to say misogyny um, in that it what? is. What? What? <laughs> does it always come down to that? Misogyny yes. or patriarchy? Spoiler it alert. does. It does. Yes, it's, it does. Always, it's always either Reagan's <laughs> fault or patriarchy's fault and no one else's. <laughs> but it's really hard to get, especially before the rise of like indie publishing, really hard to get people to take a chance on non-icy, unlikable women women who would rather burn it to the ground are it's I a trope or it's an idea that um, it hard. It, there's so many gates you have to get through and you're not going to get through many of them. If you're like, Shh, what she's going to do is she's going to ruin everything until someone helps her not. And that's just mm-hmm. a hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Someone who's actively destructive rather than passively destructive. Right. Cause actively destructive women are terrifying to the patriarchy. Okay. Well, also, I just thought of a really cool Halloween couples idea for sapphics. One being an ice queen and one being a fire queen. 
Ooh, I love Kelly, that. You and Rosalind have to do this because oh, you are the I, fire queen person and she is the ice queen yes, person. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Rad. Okay. So actually I want to um, kind of transition here to talking about a little bit about queer theory stuff and how that informs your writing, but then also in general. So I saw a tweet earlier this week. It might've been yes- literally yesterday or the day before where you were talking about um, Judith Butler. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so she, Judith Butler rules and it may be the most important theorist in terms of like queer theory, gender identity ever. Um, and she is the person that created the idea of gender as performative. Like that's kind of her core theory. And, but what she means by performative is not like what you're thinking of performative is. It She used, means performative as an act of creation. Like in being mm. this, you're creating it. Like I am a performer. Exactly. Yeah. So you're, so you're embodying your gender by performing it, by creating it and making it real in the world. And it's, and it's created through acts of repetition, exactly. right? It's a reiterative construct. Exactly. And so I wanted to kind of get into this notion of, especially in sapphic romance, and I think you're kind of the person to help do this, is a lot of the reason why, and you actually mentioned this in your blog post, we'll link it in the, it's, it, it's in the, it's in the notes. Um, the idea of like representation and levels of representation and to a certain extent, art is also performative in the Judith Butler idea of performative. Yes. And so as someone who is creating art and creating sapphic art explicitly, do you mind kind of going into or talking to us about this notion of art as representation, art as performative, and how you're using your art or your voice in the sapphic romance space to sort of create that representation that you haven't seen? Oh, I love this. I love this. So one thing that I feel very strongly about, and I mentioned it briefly in the blog post that you're referring to, is that while representation is crucial, it is absolutely important, right? Especially when we're looking at voices and experiences within the sapphic community that don't often get that, right? Like sapphics of color, disabled sapphics, etc. That, yes, representation is important. But I don't think that representation can be an or should be the end goal here, because I think that's limiting, right? Mm -hmm. And if the goal is simply to see more representations of certain kinds of folks, I mean, yes, absolutely. But that's a starting point. It's not the ending point. So I want to advocate for what I think of as liberation rather than representation. And this is a pretty... um, pretty major goal. And I want to be clear, it's not one that I see my work as achieving because liberation is not something one person does. It is something done by the collective. But I think it's done in part by creating more space for different kinds of voices and perspectives so that the system that we're in doesn't simply duplicate other kinds of systems. So I think we in the sapphic romance community, especially the Indian small press sapphic romance community, have this really incredible opportunity to create something that doesn't just repeat, going back to Judith Butler, that doesn't just reiterate these different kinds of systems that we've experienced, right? Mainstream representation of sapphics, for example. I think that's really, really, really hard to do. 
so do I see myself as, as doing that or as participating in that? Yes, to some extent and not to others. I think writing books as a Jewish woman, um, I, it's very important to me to write books that are Jewish, that don't just have Jewish characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way that I want to contribute to the sort of larger ethos of, of pushing sapphic romance towards different kinds of ideas and experiences, but uplifting other writers and seeking out other writers and boosting different kinds of voices. I think that's really, really, really crucial. Absolutely. And speaking of your Jewishness, um, also, I would like to say that uh, Liz and I are a couple of Gentiles. And so we are not the experts here. Um, But we haven't had the opportunity to talk with someone that has sort of an like ethno-religious identity. Um, and so I'm just really excited about the idea of, and, and you've talked about it a couple of times, and I just really want to dig into what does it mean to you for your book, not to just be about a Jewish character, but to be innately Jewish. Like when you're talking about mm-hmm. that, what do you, what do you mean? Also, if you could explain to maybe some people what <laughs> ethno-religious means. <laughs> My bad. Absolutely. So I'll start off by talking about my own ethno-religious identity. So I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I'm I'm Jewish on both sides um, of my family. So the Ashkenazi part is the ethnic part. So it means that I am descended from a particular Jewish population that uh, is not identical to other kinds of Jewish populations. So there's Ashkenazi, uh, there's Sephardi, there's Mizrahi, there's, you know, other kind of smaller groups, Ethiopian Jews, for example. Uh, Ashkenazi is the dominant ethnic group of Jews in the United States, not necessarily in the world. I think in Israel, it's pretty mixed uh, with in terms of all these different kinds. But Ashkenazi culture is what you probably think of as Jewish culture. So, you know, um, klezmer music, Yiddish, delis, um, those things, right? Seinfeld, Larry David, all of that. That's Ashkenazi Jewish culture. So being Ashkenazi means that it's not just about what I believe, it's about who I am ethnically. So for example, Ashkenazi Jews, I mean, this is kind of the dark side of being Ashkenazi, we are genetically predisposed to a lot of different diseases. Um, Most of us have some form of um, issue that, that, you know, impacts how we live our lives. So for example, uh, my family has what's called the BRCA1 gene, which is present among other populations, but is most dominant among Ashkenazi Jews. And effectively, what it means is that you uh, have a, I think it's 50 to 60% chance of developing ovarian cancer in your life, and an 80%-ish chance of developing breast cancer at some point in your life. I will confirm, and and just so that nobody worries about me, I do not have the gene. I've been tested. Uh, but my family has effectively been decimated by it. Um, Almost every female relative I have um, on my dad's side specifically um, has had multiple forms of cancer and many of them have died from them. Um, So that's kind of a downer note. Um, (laughs) uh, But just in terms of explaining the ethnic thing, right? If I converted to Judaism, I would not necessarily inherit the BRCA gene, right? Mm, Okay. Okay. Um, So that's the explanation for the ethno-religious part. Yes, thank you. I'm brought up to speed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you asked, what does it mean to write a Jewish book? Like as an innately just, Jewish book. Is an innately Jewish, Jewish book. book about Judaism. 
Right. So first of all, I should say at the offset um, that what I'm about to say is not the definitive opinion on what a Jewish book is. That's the uh, most we have a college s- professor thing. It anyone? is. <laughs> it is. It. it is also the most Jewish thing because thing, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you, so there's this kind of very common uh, uh, phrase among Jews that is effectively uh, ask, ask two Jews, get three opinions. Uh, my, my wife would say, ask one Jew, get three opinions. <laughs> uh, uh, so basically, you know, our experiences of Judaism in terms of Jewish people, like it's so, so broad. Um, so, and as someone who I am not especially religious, my relationship with Judaism is largely, not entirely, but largely secular. So that also informs how I'm going to talk about this being a Jewish book. I do want to specify that. So, a book that is Jewish to me foregrounds Jewish experiences and Jewish traditions and Jewish humor in ways that welcome and include Gentile readers, absolutely, but that fundamentally privilege Jewish readers. So when I write a Jewish book, I'm writing for Jews. I'm also writing for Gentiles, absolutely, but I am writing my characters, I'm writing my book in a way that is speaking to Jews. So I include some of the more familiar hallmarks of, of Jewishness, the ones a lot of Gentiles already know, right? Foods, holidays, etc. But it was really important to me to go beyond the basics because those really are just basics. And I wanted to acknowledge the complexities and the joys of being Jewish in ways that speak to Jews. So I can give you a couple of examples of, of how yeah, I did this. Yeah. So Judaism at its heart is about asking questions. If I had to kind of sum up one aspect of Judaism that at least for me feels the most important, that's that's it. Um, we ask questions about God, uh, about the status quo, about each other. And something I really, really love about Judaism is that we are not only encouraged to ask questions, it's actually demanded of us. Uh, Judaism emphasize, emphasizes deeds over faith, so what you believe is not as important as what you do in the world. So Loser of the Year is written from my Jewish MC's POV, uh, third-person POV. And there are an astronomical number of questions throughout, both in Maddie's dialogue and in her narrative voice. I may have to cut some of those questions as I move through the editorial process, but I really want to keep a lot of them because it's my hope that Jewish readers will recognize themselves in the way that Maddie turns over just about everything. She is never satisfied with what she's told. She's always, she's making trouble, right? Another example, and this is like maybe a more humorous kind, is that at one point in the book, Maddie remembers that growing up, she had what's called a Hanukkah bush, quote unquote, uh, which is a small pine tree that you decorate with Jewish ornaments. And in the book, Maddie's parents got them for her and her brother as kids, so they wouldn't feel left out among all the Mm. Gentiles at Christmas time. They live in an almost exclusively Gentile town. Hanukkah bushes are actually pretty controversial among Jews. Um, A lot of Jews see them as Christian assimilationist, uh, but there are some Jews who see them as pretty distinctly Jewish, especially because of the way they're sort of fraught, right? Mm -hmm. So including that detail is a way for me to explore Maddie's complicated relationship with both Judaism and Christianity, because she doesn't always feel Jewish enough but she feels totally estranged from Christian beliefs and practices. 
And that's a really, really common interstitial space for non-religious Jews, especially to be in. That is so fascinating. Also, as you were speaking, it's really interesting because there is a lot of allegory, for lack of a better word, between uh, Judaism, as you're expressing it here, and queerness. Yes. I promise that was my next question. I just didn't use big words in my head. (laughs) But yeah, how do they intersect? But also when you were describing of like, you're welcome to read this book as a Gentile, but it's not for you, right? Like, and the, right. immediately as you said that, I'm like, it's like pride celebrations. Like, yeah, everyone exactly. can come, but no, this isn't for you. Yes, yes, yeah. And I do want to be clear that I, I want everybody, as many people, of course, as possible to to read this for sure, uh, right? But but yes, I wanted to write a book that that speaks directly to Jews. And you're right; it's it's very similar to the way that queer people are often speaking to one another. And I will say in terms of the connection between Judaism and queerness, a huge, huge theme of the book is about the conflict between Catholicism and the way that it uh, depicts a particular kind of appropriate faith and Judaism itself. And I do kind of, I not, I would say it's not really super explicit, but I do align queerness and Maddie's queerness, especially with Judaism and what Judaism allows her to feel and experience. Hmm. So rad. Wow. So as a person who is writing from an intersectional space, a queer space and a ethno-religious space, how cognizant as you're writing, are you of this intersectionality or are you just writing and you are a queer woman who is, ethnically and religiously Jewish. And so that's what's coming on the page or can you kind of dig into that? Yeah. So I think some of it is unintentional and some of it is intentional and the intentional bits tend to be the aspects of Ashkenazi Jewish culture that I want to make sure I include. So both Maddie and her parents who are both Jewish use Yiddish pretty frequently because that's what I grew up around. Uh, there's just to kind of include, this is not in the book, but just to kind of give you an idea about how Yiddish can inform Ashkenazi families. Uh, so when I was a little kid, uh, if I was making too much noise, my father would say to me, Hakmir Nish Kainchainik, which means effectively, well, literally, it means don't rub the china pieces together. But what it means metaphorically is stop bothering me. Like you're, you're no, this is too much, right? Uh, and it, I didn't know. I knew what it meant. I didn't know the literal translation or any of those details until I, I was older. Right? But it, it informs, you know, like even now, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting in the car, you know, waiting for someone to move in front of me, and I'll say "new," which in Yiddish means "well." Like, come on, let's go. You know. <laughs> so it's it's very much a part of how I speak. I'm I'm not fluent. I want to be very clear about that. Like most Ashkenazi Jews in my generation, I only know little bits of Yiddish here and there. Um, The last generation among Ashkenazi reform and conservative Jews to be truly fluent was, I would say, our grandparents' generation. Uh, But there's also ways that I think that my Judaism just impacts the book that I'm writing. So what I was saying earlier about how asking questions is so central to who Maddie is as a Jew I didn't 
start off intending that. And then I noticed it. And I thought, you know what, this is a really important part of being Jewish that is just kind of unintentionally coming out of me because it is my worldview. I think that's something that's so important about writing a Jewish character, no matter who writes the character, whether it's someone who is Jewish or someone who is not, is that it's so important to understand that we have a particular way of seeing the world. And again, this, I think, connects to queerness, right? Queer people have a particular way of seeing the world that is informed by their queerness. So I don't think that I see the world in exactly the same way that someone who is Gentile or you know raised Christian would necessarily see it. Thank God. Um, okay, so one of my favorite, like, we asked you the big three questions. One of my big three books is a book by Chaim Potok called My Name is Asher Lev. Mm-hmm. And remarkable book. I just, I am obsessed with it. I could talk about it for hours. But as I was reading your first chapter and then now listening to you talk and in general, like exploring your Twitter feeds and all of this, the writing that I could find, I am very interested in the intersection of Judaism and art. Mm. And how those two interact with one another and how art in general interacts with religion historically, Mm. I mean, across the spectrum. But um, for you, is your art and do you view your art as an expression of your religion? I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that I do. And the reason for that is so... I think a a lot of Jewish holidays effectively come down to the phrase, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat and celebrate. Mm. And what's embedded in that kind of ethos is this combination of tremendous pain, but also a sense of humor about it and a way to locate the joy. And I think both of those things are so intrinsic to being Jewish. At least they are for me. Again, I don't want to speak for other Jews. And that's very much present in in this particular book. I think it's going to be present in every book that I write. I care about the pain. I care about it deeply. I don't want to dismiss it or not acknowledge it or not explore it. That's incredibly crucial to me. But I also want to find space for the joy. I want to find space for the humor, especially dark humor. That's also really important to me as well. Yeah. And I just think that the way that religion in general, impacts your worldview cannot be overstated, even when you're telling yourself it doesn't matter to me at all. Yes, absolutely. I grew up fundamentalist. It sucked. Um, And it sucked as much as you think it sucked. It sucked just like 1% more than that. Um, But as part of that, every day I am deconstructing and fighting against and finding these internalized fears or a ton of internalized just by the nature of what fundamentalism is prejudices or these sorts of things. And I think that for me, art has been a place where I can explore that. That is very safe because I think that's kind of the beauty of art and what I, why I think that everyone, whether or not they share their art, I think everyone is an artist. And I think that the part of us that is exploring when we're doing art is the part of us that wants to understand. Um, And I, so I think it's really interesting that, especially from a religion that is very like question based. And um, it's also really funny because I was thinking about like, oh yeah, that's very Socratic. And like, of course it's very Socratic. (laughs) Socrates grew up 
in a Jewish culture. They, yeah, of course. Just put that together right now. <laughs> of course it's Socratic. He was just doing what everyone he'd ever met had done his entire life. Well, and, and to bounce off of that, I think one of the things that is so interesting. I Liz is losing it. I'm just I'm just really It is very clear. What one of these things is not like the other. One of these people doesn't have a degree. It's just really funny watching the two of you be like, yes. And I was like, that's a smart person joke. I'm gonna have to pull it out later. Um, absolutely no it's yep i'm lear- like i said i learn from your tweets i will learn from this interview i learn from just being besties with this person all the time well, we, we all get to learn all the time right like i absolutely see myself as a lifelong learner i am learning every single day and i learned yeah. a lot from the sapphic romance community so much mm-hmm. oh yeah um I, I completely lost my train of thought. I have no idea where we were at in this podcast. All Something I know. about Socrates. That, that was just a side note because I just am learning about Judaism. I'm a Gentile. <laughs> well, I do want to. I do want to bounce off making what you were saying just really quickly to talk about. I was saying, you know, there, a Jewish worldview is so intrinsic to establishing mm-hmm. a Jewish character's POV, and there are things I think about a Christian worldview. And again, I say this as someone who was not raised in it, but also raised in a very Christian culture. So I know a lot about Christianity. You're American. You were raised in it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But a Christian worldview goes beyond, right? A belief in the Trinity, right? All these different kinds of emphases. There is an emphasis within a Christian worldview on the value of self-discipline, self-denial, self-martyrdom, right? Giving of yourself constantly. And this isn't to say that Jews don't or can't practice those sorts of things. Like I am a Jew who has practiced in (laughs) self-denial pretty frequently, but that most of us who grew up, you know, secular or reform or conservative, we're not raised to see them as inherently valuable. And I think that's very different from folks who grew up within a specifically Christian worldview. That is so interesting. And transition into talking about sex. Um, (laughs) All right, here's my time to shine. (laughs) um, So, In Christianity, sex, especially queer sex, but sex in general, is very taboo. Um, It is okay in one very specific context, and you cannot talk about it outside of that context. And if you do, it's big trouble. So can you just a little bit, just for my edification, talk about um, Judaism's relationship to sex? Or if there is even, is it a thing that... Jewish people care about? Or are they kind of like, oh, no, go for it? So again, not being a, a huge expert, right, in, yeah. in all of this. I, so different different Jews will have different answers to this, right? So mm-hmm. especially, you know, within Orthodox or Hasidic communities, your answer will be different um, than the answer that I, I might give. I mean, sex, there, there isn't the same kind of prohibitive or restrictive stance on it. There are certainly many Jews who believe that sex should be within a marriage. Absolutely, that exists. But within more kind of reform or secular perspectives, that prohibition is not really a thing. Mm. Man, I'm really disappointed the New Testament happened and then I got (laughs) into it. Biblical jokes now? Come on. (laughs) Okay, I do want to talk about sex because you 
are talking about sex in your blog post, which yeah, can, yeah. If I can quote you, or read a little excerpt from it because um, I love this part. So you, this is when you were summarizing like what you'll find in your books, um, and you said lots of sex. And But then you go to say, I'm fascinated by the questions sex scenes pose. What do these two people find hot and why? Are they able to go after what they want or verbalize it? Or are they holding back? How well do they understand their own desire? How do they reveal themselves? So I think you put into really good words what my brain has been rumbling around ever since I came into this sapphic romance world, discovered books, discovered all of that. Because um, I think that that's what you're getting, you know, when you're writing it and creating these characters, but that's also very much, and you're probably the same way, what I'm getting from reading it and my own sexuality. And I never had the language for what that was doing. But now I'm asking myself as I'm reading this of like, what would I like? How would I verbalize that? Who am I in bed? And who do I want to be in bed? And what do I need from a partner? And I don't know. It's, I don't know how to describe that other than what you exactly just put in your blog of like, it really makes you think about those things when you're either reading or writing the story. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a question at the end of that, but I just wanted to point that out that I really enjoyed that part of your blog. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it does bring up an interesting craft question, which is, so as someone who is writing explicit sex on the page, you're always aware of the baggage people are bringing into the bedroom. So can we talk a little bit about, from a craft perspective, how you can bring that to the page without explicitly turning it into a a sex therapy session? Yes, absolutely. Because that is something that I... Yeah. Have been like, as I've tried to write an actual romance novel and not just a literary fiction novel about love, um, like writing explicit sex, it almost always right now is like, and now let's talk about our feelings for nine pages. I'm like, that is not hot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that's realistic to the sapphic experience. It is. <laughs> it is. It but is. Anyway, so can you kind of dig into that and how you're approaching that and all, all of that good stuff? Yeah. Well, without giving too much away, I will say that the first sex scene in my book is absolutely a feelings processing (laughs) sex scene, but it's also like an important plot moment as well. Like a lot of stuff happens uh, to create that moment. And so the sex that my characters have is absolutely born out of where they are emotionally at that particular point. Mm -hmm. Something that I've thought about a lot while writing sex scenes, and I imagine everyone who writes especially explicit sex scenes, thinks about this, is what words to use, what language to use. Mm -hmm. So part of it is not wanting to infringe on readers' boundaries too much in ways that make them uncomfortable is okay, but like throw them out, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of it. Of course, you can't, as a writer, you cannot anticipate everyone's reactions. You just can't. But there are certain kinds of reactions that you can anticipate. So for example, a tiny, tiny bit of a spoiler. So at the beginning of what leads into a sex scene, the first sex scene, uh, Maddie, my main character, is in a towel and needs to change and asks Jillian, who is in the room with her, she says, I need you to turn around. And Jillian just says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Maddie says, 
I, I need you to turn around. And Jillian says, you can go back in the bathroom. I'm not going to stop you. Like you can, you can go change. You know, I, I know what you want to do. You want to, you want to change right here. Right. And so I wrote that, that particular way because I wanted a moment where Jillian, who another bit of a spoiler, Jillian's a dom. I wanted a moment where Jillian could kind of top Maddie, but in a way that acknowledged Maddie's consent, mm-hmm. her autonomy. Mm. So it's not Jillian ordering Maddie to do something. Maddie has a choice, right? If she wants to go back into that bathroom and be out by herself, she can do that. She can walk out of that particular room completely if she wants mm-hmm. to. Jillian's not going to stop her, but Jillian also knows what she wants. And so I wrote that very carefully to make sure that I acknowledged Maddie's autonomy because I'm you know, very aware that I think most of us, consent is extremely, extremely important, not just as a practice. I think hopefully all of us think of it as important as a practice, but in terms of our own sexual boundaries. So that was really crucial for me to think about. Absolutely. Well, and so when you are writing, um, especially dynamics, uh, power dynamics, um, how are you cognizant of like you were talking about your, your writing consent and you want it to be explicitly consensual, but still maintaining that power, like that dom sub power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about bridging yeah. that or how you, how you craft, like from a craft perspective, how you tackle that without denying. Sounding like an instruction manual. <laughs> exactly. Without being like, well, first what you're going to do. Exactly. Because if it gets too instruction manual-y, then it's not hot, right? And of course, one of the big goals of writing sex is to have it be hot. I think, so So making sure that whatever the characters do in the sex scene, they both want to do, and they are expressing that to one another. Mm-hmm. Something that I do in Loser of the Year, and I'll be, again, vague to avoid too many spoilers, is where one character will tell another in a particular sexual encounter, tell me how to do X, right? So tell me how to make you come, for example. And so you have that kind of power dynamic there, like I'm ordering you, you tell me how to do this. But, you know, of course, the the understanding there is that the other person said, I don't want you to make me come, then, you know, or for example, there's one moment where, uh, one character is going down on the other and the character experiencing, thank you. uh, And the character experiencing oral sex has an orgasm and, and then says, you know, since I'm too sensitive, stop. And the other person stops immediately. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I use, I say, you know, I don't want to give spoilers. So name stopped immediately. And then I continue on there. So I show them listening to each other. I show that they care about hearing what the other person is saying. Yeah. It's awesome. I think I think it's so important to learn about sex and sexuality and sexual experience through books because you naturally have to write out what they are doing and mm-hmm. the dialogue of what they're saying. The hottest sex scenes for me in books are ones with a lot of dialogue. And I think maybe it's because I don't know. We could, I could speak to a sex therapist about this, but um, it is hot being able to communicate what you want, what you don't want. And we've grown up for any like sexual shame based culture to, you should just automatically like know how to have sex. You should automatically be able to orgasm. You should be able to do all these things, like, especially as a woman, you should do this. 
And then to learn, like actually hear the words and hear the language that two people can use with each other um, while engaging in sex is crucial and I think life-changing and everyone should read sapphic romance. (laughs) There's my pitch. Well, and not only should you know how to, especially in the culture that I grew up in, same with Catholicism, you have to actively stop yourself from doing, you're taught that not only should you know how to, that like, don't do it, stop yourself from doing it. So not Mm -hmm. only should you know, but you should also stop yourself. So it's not, so when you don't know, it's frustrating because you're like, what? I was supposed to be so good at this. I had to stop myself for years. Well, yeah. So we have, we have like the religious or the cultural side being like, you shouldn't be having sex. And then you have the movies that are like, you should be a sex goddess immediately. And so to have a form of media that's accessible, that's like, no, that's not actually the case. And because you have to talk about it, you have to communicate what you want. Important. Yeah, you ha- you have to share how you want to be touched and how you want to touch other people too. I think that's one thing that sapphic romance does and can continue to do is be really specific about the ways that you do have sex or the ways that particular characters have sex. So if there's, you know, if there are characters who are having a conversation, for example, about, you know, hey, I noticed you don't take off these articles of clothing when we're having sex. Do you not like to be touched there? If they have that conversation, then maybe for some folks that might open up a possibility of like, oh, I could set that boundary or, oh, I could ask that question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and um, to again, reference your blog post, this is a really good blog post, y'all. It's a great blog Thank post. You. Seriously. Um, you talked a lot. So you, you use the Barbie, my job is beach to say your job is word. And then you go on to discuss the importance of finding and creating and giving language. And I think that especially in sapphic spaces, giving language to sapphic desire and sapphic sex in a way that isn't taboo is in a lot of ways the job of this generation's sapphic artists. Um, As in previous generations, it was really letting it be okay our, I feel like our job is not only is it okay, it is something to be, it's worthy and it's as worthy as anything else. And it's something to be celebrated. And I've only read one chapter of your book, but from that chapter, I can already tell that you're writing from a place of queer joy. And so can you maybe talk a little bit about art and your relationship with queer joy and how you express your queerness through your art, but also through sex and all of that sort of, I don't exactly know what this question is, except for like, how have you been able to so beautifully, even in just one chapter, I know it's going to rule, um, <laughs> wrap up this idea of sex, sexuality, joy, even joy in the face of oppression in your art and, and why you do that. I'm gonna have to think about that one because it's a really it's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so maybe I can talk about it through uh, the lens of queer temporality. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how queerness disrupts linear experiences of time, absolutely, because queer people don't usually experience the same markers that cis het people do. There is a concept 
called developmentalism. And effectively, developmentalism is about how our experiences of time, all of our experiences of time, are impacted by the ideology that change occurs in one direction towards an eventual goal. So as a teenager, you're supposed to, you know, take your SATs if you're in the US, you know, go to prom, graduate, you know, have your first kiss, like you're supposed to hit these particular markers at particular times, right? And and this is ideological. That's what developmentalism is the language that lets us understand that this is not just a process that happens naturally. It's a process that happens ideologically. And there's so much pressure on all of us, not just queer people, all of us to hit particular markers. And so something that was really important for me, and I think this is wrapped up in this idea of queer joy, in writing this book was to write two characters who in very different ways are on totally different timelines from where they're supposed to be. So Maddie, in the start of this book, she's 38 years old. She has, as she sees it, she has failed entirely on basically every level. She is an unsuccessful actress. She's never been able to make a steady career out of it, despite trying for almost 20 years. She just got a divorce. Uh, She really doesn't have any friends anymore because she is unable to withstand their compassion. She sees it as pity. It's too painful for her. And she's returned to this hometown she doesn't want to be in, where she has painful memories of growing up queer and Jewish. And so she really sees herself as sort of fundamentally this failure. And I think what she's seeing herself as is this person who doesn't live a life that corresponds to the markers that she should, quote unquote, be corresponding to. And Jillian, I, I won't say as much about her journey because I don't want to spoil too much, but Jillian is is very much the same. So it was important to me not only to write that, but to have their queer temporality be something that doesn't entirely change by the end of the novel. So yes, there is a happily ever after. Absolutely. There's a really strong emphasis on the importance of queer joy, but at the end of the book, they are still out of straight time in a lot of ways. Like they don't hit particular markers of success that maybe some folks would anticipate they might, but they're happy, right? They're, they're incredibly transformatively happy. And it was so important for me to depict that. Well, something I've been tackling a lot, this is going to the happily ever after is happily ever after has been defined in such heteronormative terms for our entire culture, but, but across the spectrum, the happily ever after is a very heteronormative. Our understanding of happily ever after is very heteronormative. And so I have been really struggling with what does it mean? What is happily ever after? What is a what genuinely queer happily ever after? So there's always the trope of like, and the epilogue, here comes the baby, right? Or, you know, like, oh, we're, it's the wedding. And, and that's like, those are very heteronormative ideas of relationships and, and to your point, temporality and okay, they're happy and you know, they're happy because they hit the next milestone. So I'm going to exactly. show you the next milestone so that you feel confident that this was a healthy and earned happily ever after. It's when they get their three foster, uh, then adopted pit bulls. And, uh, yeah. That's that's it. That's, that's the-, the sapphic happily ever after, right? <laughs> Correct. Okay. They're like following Brandy Carlisle on her tour. Um, yeah, true. Um, and so I love the idea of a happily ever after. That is these two people choosing to do life together, 
but life isn't fixed because they chose one another. Exactly. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last few months. So I, I'm going to shout out uh, one of my beta readers here, Jade, who uh, goes by Sagacious Sapphic on Twitter. They are amazing. Like they are one of the sort of most generous, uh, most smart, most interesting voices in, in our community. And I'm so grateful uh, for not just their presence, but also for how they've helped me as a writer. And, and something that Jade suggested to me, um, I cannot providing too many spoilers about my epilogue is, you know, they, they said to me, you know, I love, I love how happy it is, right? It's wonderful to, you know, to see how happy these characters are, but where's, where's the pain? Right. Where's where, there's there's pain in this book? Where is the pain? Why why has does it seem like it's not there? And I mm. thought they're right. They're absolutely right. And so, so I have been thinking about this a lot. And I think for me, and I, I reworked some of the epilogue. I mean, the epilogue is still a happily ever after, but there's more of that pain still evident there. And. So I think for me, not to not to put queer pain at the center of queerness, I, I don't want to do that. But I think, and this comes back to being Jewish, I think in some respects, that you got to balance the pain and the joy. Both are always, always present. And I don't ever want to ignore one for the other. Absolutely. Well, in um, slight flight risk spoilers, my friends, um, in my epilogue, I struggled with the same thing of, no, these are still very hurt, very broken humans. They're just better together than they are apart. Exactly. Um, and so in the epilogue, it was really important to me that it's not fixed. You know, that that Rivers is still hurting. And that Bailey still has largely no idea what the fuck to do ever. And her answer is always going to be, we should go somewhere. You know what we should do? Yes. We, should go. Yes. We, we certainly can't sit with this. So let's go somewhere. And I think that, and it might not even be innately queer. It might just be innately human. Yeah. That oh, we are made of light and dark. We are made yeah. of good and bad. And that neither one is better than the other, but we have lived in a culture that has so um, made, like treats happiness with such reverence and treats um, that we forget that like, no, both are okay and both are natural and both are good. Yes. Yeah. And both are necessary, I think, in a lot of respects. And inevitable. Yes. Like yes. pain is inevitable and joy is inevitable. Yeah. And we treat pain like it's inevitable and joy like it's a job you have to seek. And it's just not true. Both are going to happen to you. Yes. Yeah. And feeling it, I think, at least for me, opening myself up to that, to the possibility of both, because at least for me, I've spent so much of my life moving through the world, not opening myself up because I, I've been so scared of pain. And what I finally learned in my 30s, it took me a long ass time to learn it, is that you don't get the joy unless you let in pain. You don't. And so you know, being human is about recognizing that those extremes are part of what it means to exist on this planet. And so, you know, I've, I've had a rough few years, um, but in the last few years, 
some of what I've experienced, I've been able to step back and say, thank God I can feel it. Thank God I'm not numbing myself to it. I am present in this pain. And there, there is, there is paradoxically, there's joy to that too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you numb the pain, you numb the joy. Brene exactly. Brown. <laughs> well, but so because I have a very complicated relationship to my own queerness, because of how I grew up and like for so many reasons, my natural state was repression. I didn't let myself feel anything for a very long time because I was so scared of and taught what I was feeling was wrong. And so if I felt nothing and uh, I'm an, I'm a student, I'm a, I'm a, a student. I'm a person that wants to be the best. If I get a 99, I'm pissed. It wasn't a hundred. That is my default setting. And so the idea of the way I was living my life being a 99 and not a 100 was untenable to me. So I just repressed everything. So if I felt nothing, then I couldn't feel the wrong things. And so my entire journey with understanding and embracing my queerness has been a journey of letting myself feel the good and the bad and understanding that like the shame I feel is a social construct and that I don't have to be ruled uh, because it is a social construct. I can reconstruct it. Um, but I, I think that, and so much of our shame is a social con- So much of everything, it all comes down to social construct. Absolutely. And for the record, I relate to everything you just said. And I came out of a very different background, right? Mm-hmm. I, I grew up Jewish or secular Jewish. You know, I had two liberal accepting parents that were gay people, gay adults in my life growing up. And this is the 90s. I grew up in Los Angeles, a very liberal area. And yet, and yet, I didn't figure out that I was queer until I was 26. I just closed myself off completely to it because of that sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same thing. So I relate to everything you're saying about repression. And I think it's so fascinating that two queer people can come out of such different contexts and still respond the same because I think making what you and I have in common is we grew up in the United States in the late 20th century. 100%. And there's, you know, there's a reality to that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I just wanted to say, I really relate to that. Well, and I think we need to talk about the fact that it, your family accepting you is huge. It's not the whole game. Right. You grow up and contextualize in a culture outside of your family, outside of your peer group. And I think one of the reasons why art is so important and why we're doing this podcast is because I didn't see any representation of myself in art really until I started reading sapphic romance. Because even the other books that I had read that were centered queer people, it was so fucking sad. Yeah. And it was like their queerness was this thing they were being punished by the universe for. And then their strength was in, I can handle the universe punishing me for this. So I'm a good person and it's okay that I'm, I'm broken and wrong because I'm strong. And like, right. that's not the reality, mm-hmm. but that was the reality of the art. And so that's why I'm so like thankful for current sapphic art, current sapphic musicians, current sapphic romance authors. Yes. So I have a question for both of you. Um, Unacceptable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How would you, what advice would you give to, you know, a queer artist or sapphic artist 
how do you write through that shame? And it kind of goes back to maybe what we talked about before of like, you know, I think Megan, you were talking about how like you had all this shame, but in the, when you're creating art, it's like, you're free from that and you're liberated from that. But coming from a person who I did grow up in a Christian background and, or, you know, and then I also went to a Catholic school and the whole thing you know, common term Catholic guilt, feeling guilty about things. And I know a lot of it is like, I need to just go to therapy and talk about the religious trauma that I've been put on a box in an attic somewhere. Um, But sometimes I try to be vulnerable with myself and get out the words. Like I used to write songs like nobody's business, but like recently it's like, I still have that guilt. Like I still have that shame and it's, I feel like if I am honest with myself and honest with my art, it's like, I, ca- I can't close it off. I can't run away from that shame. Exactly. So yeah, you have to, you have to face it. I mean, that's what I would, yeah. I would say you have to face it is terrifying and it is necessary because authenticity is one of the most important things you can do as a writer. If you're not writing from an authentic place, you're not going to reach people in the way that that you could. I mean, maybe you'll reach people anyway, but if you don't see yourself, if you don't see your fears, your shame, your pain, then you can't write in a way I think that fundamentally connects with people. Mm. And I and I I discovered that in writing Loser Veer. I thought I was just gonna write this like, you know, not not light because I knew it wasn't going to be fully light and and it's humorous in a lot of respects. I didn't expect how close I would get to some really painful shit for myself. And I, I wrote it. There's, um, and I'll probably talk about this a little bit later, uh, in Elizabeth Bishop's poem, one art, which is a poem about repression. It's a poem about not looking at the thing that terrifies you, the thing that has wounded you. The very last line of the poem includes in parentheses, the words, write it. And write is italicized. It's the mm-hmm. only word that's italicized in the poem. And that Bishop's right. You got to write it. You have to write the thing that terrifies you. Absolutely. Hmm. So um, surprising no one, I'm going to quote Mary Oliver. Um, yes. She says she once wrote in an essay about why she wrote, right? She wrote, she wrote, I read the way a person might swim to save his or her life. I wrote that way too. And my advice would be write to save your life, right into it. The only way I've ever been able to face it is to know that. And here's the thing. You don't have to share what you're right. Like exactly. don't put that pressure on your art. It doesn't matter if you're the only person that ever reads that story. It doesn't matter because the purpose of the art is to exist. The purpose of the art isn't to be shared. And our culture has conflated the purpose of art with the commerce of art because capitalism. But the purpose of the art is to simply exist. You have a really unique situation where you are married to another creative. You're married to another writer. And so I would really be interested in, in exploring or talking a little bit about what that relationship is like and how her, she impacts your art, you impact her art. Do you guys create together? Can you talk a little bit about being a person that in a way that is more explicit than maybe anyone else I know of has a, a truly communal artistic 
um, existence? Yeah. So I am incredibly lucky to be married, not only to a creative person, but to my all time favorite writer. (gasps) She's been my favorite writer since before she even knew I existed. So it's also this is Rosalind Sinclair. We haven't technically said her name. (laughs) I should mention my wife's name. Yes. (laughs) Rosalind Sinclair, uh, who is, is brilliant on every level. She's, you know, kind, she's gorgeous. She's a, she's she's a young upstart. You might not have heard of, of any of her work. It's just super unpopular. It's very niche. <laughs> she is also, I should add, capable of totally kicking my ass at Trivial Pursuit, which is very hot, like extremely. So hot. Uh, so she is the, the first person that I've ever been partnered with who's creative in the same way that I am. And, and I will say at the, at the outset that romantic partnerships can absolutely be fulfilling when the people in them don't share those kinds of interests. Obviously they can be, but I will tell you, it is the most generative, the most exciting and rewarding experience to be with somebody who loves language and story and queerness in the same way that I do. Mm. Um, I mean, so, so we talk, I mean, we talk about craft all, all the time, every single day we talk about it. Sometimes it's our own individual projects. I mean, she has been here for me for loser of the year since, I mean, literally that moment she said, you should write a Sapphic romance novel, right? She has been an integral part of that process. I talk out um, all of my ideas with her. I'm like, oh, this is where I want to take them or I'm stuck here or I'm not sure what Jillian's thinking at this moment or, you know, and we'll talk it out. I'm an external processor. I'm an extrovert. Like I need to figure things out through talking and she will do that with me. I do it with her, although her creative process is a little bit more internal uh, than mine is. But, you know, right now she's working on her next book and I get to read every bit of it as she writes it, which is like the most exciting thing in the world to be able to read your favorite writer's writing as they're doing it. It's like, it's so cool. Um, There's also an immense amount of trust there. Mm. We can share really vulnerable or idiosyncratic ideas with each other and know for a fact that the other person will treat us gently, mm. which of course does not preclude critique, right? There are absolutely times where she'll say to me, I don't think that's going to work and here's why or vice versa. But I know I'm safe with her and she knows that she's safe with me. And I, when we talk to each other, we know that the other person is someone who not only loves us, but who loves our work, right? And and again, like we first connected through writing. We knew each other's writing before we knew each other. And so that's been a really special way to connect. Uh, one of the things that we do on a regular basis is write for each other. We have whole universes and stories and characters that are unique to us. They're original to us and they are just for us. We will never share them with anybody else. Uh, we do this a few nights a week. We get out our laptops. It's usually Rosalind who's telling me the story. Sometimes it's the other way around, but she'll tell me a story through iMessage just a little at a time. She makes it up on the spot because she's brilliant. I mean, again, I, I cannot overstate how brilliant my wife is. Um, and then I'll do it for her too sometimes. But it's 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 like taking somebody's hand and jumping into a portal into the place that you most want to be with the person you most want to be with. Uh, it's just the most generative and wonderful experience I can imagine. That's incredible. I'm, li- <laughs> I'm literally tearing up just like <laughs> listening to you and talk about your wife and the art and just... I bet those stories are amazing. 
So when you guys are writing together, um, are you essentially alpha reading for one another? Or are you guys bouncing ideas back and forth, that sort of thing? Is it is it very collaborative or would you give each other more like finished product? It's, it's alpha reading for sure. Okay. Um, we both read scene by scene, chapter by chapter. So, you know, she'll say, well, I wrote this, you know, this morning I wrote, you know, 800 words this morning and then I'll get to read it. I would say one thing that we're really good at is communicating what we want at particular stages. So, for example, right now, um, in terms of what Rosalind's currently writing, I am mostly just talking about what I love. I, you know, she's not there yet with certain aspects of the book where, you know, suggestions would be what she wants. And so I'm just telling her all the stuff I love, which is a lot, right? And I'll say, oh, I love this because it does that, right? And she's done the same for me. Uh, when she's read particular chapters, I'll say to her, I just want to hear what you really love. Tell me the parts that you love. And sometimes I'll say, you know, I'm worried about this aspect. What do you think? You know, do you think it does this or do you think it does that? So we'll be very specific about the kind of feedback we want from one another. But we're absolutely, both of us are integrally involved in the writing process. And I, I mean, how helpful she was to me in writing this book. I cannot overstate it. Incredible. Oh my God. I bet your vows were amazing. Did you write your own vows? <laughs> I will say, I will say actually on that. Yes, we did write our own vows. And a number of people at our wedding after when we were having our um, uh, our brunch afterwards, they came up to us and said, those are the best vows I've ever heard in any wedding. So yeah. I, I will, I will say that. <laughs> but I also, I don't know, this would be me. If I were y'all, I would have been like, I'm so much pressure. Everyone knows we're both authors. If these <laughs> vows don't kick ass. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. For sure. Well, and it was also, I think for both of us, pretty easy because we just know what we feel and we write what we feel for each other, right? Yeah. Being, being married to Rosalind, being with Rosalind, not just married to her has been part of that process we were talking about before about opening ourselves up. Mm -hmm. Um, like getting, getting together with her was the beginning of that journey for me. And so as that's been happening, it's become easier and easier to access those parts of me. All right. Big three. Woohoo. And this is a special edition, big three, because Carrie gave us some poems as well. Um, but yeah, whatever you want to start with, Carrie, either your books, albums, poems, let's get into it. Let's start with books because yeah. this was actually this was actually the easiest one for me which you might be surprised by because obviously I am a book person I read a lot of books that's literally my job but it was so easy for me to be like these are the three there were there were three that really came to me pretty quickly so the first one is a book by Ella Montgomery best known as the author of Anne of Green Gables called Emily of New Moon from I believe 1923 so I love Anne Shirley. Like, she's great. I loved her. Like, she never shuts up. I identify. <laughs> but Emily. Emily is so dear to my heart uh, because she was the first child character I encountered who knew she was a writer and who mm -hmm. took her writing seriously. So she's, the book starts, I think she's about eight. It ends when she's about 14. This is the first book in a series. We see her grow up to become an adult. She does become a published and, and well-known author. But so much of these, all three books, um, but also the first one, so much of them is about craft. 
Like, what does it mean to be a writer? And, and that was the first time I'd ever seen a child, especially a female child, have that taken seriously. It's also, in a very strange way, the origin of my love for the Ice Queen dynamic. I only realized this recently. Uh, Rosalind and I actually read these books together last year because we had like a little two-person book club because she knew how important they were to me. And so we read them like chapter by chapter and talked about them. And I realized that Emily's relationship with her aunt, Elizabeth, is a total ice queen um, sunshine dynamic. So again, it, it's it's strange to say that because this is literally a child and her aunt, right? Uh, this relationship obviously is not sexual or romantic. I don't see it that way. But Aunt Elizabeth is this unmarried spinster. She's stern. She's cold. She's got a million walls. So put and over the process. Exactly. And over the process of the book, Emily melts them uh, in a way that is incredibly emotionally intense. There's like these moments where you just feel this incredible pain, this catharsis. That, I mean, it's, it's like, it's stunning. And it's interesting too, that, you know, Emily, of course, has a love interest that you meet in the first book and that she ends up marrying at the end of the third book. And nothing about her relationship with that love interest is half as interesting or emotionally compelling as her relationship with her aunt. And so mm. that's, that's the ice cream. That's where it began for me is, is that particular dynamic. My second book is a book that most folks probably will not be familiar with. And that book is April Sinclair's Coffee Will Make You Black, which I believe was published in 1994. So Megan, you were saying earlier about how until you got to sapphic romance, you really didn't read anything that made you feel seen as a queer person. And I would say that this book, I mostly had that experience, but this book was a big exception. Um, this book is the first time that I can remember feeling seen as a queer person, mm. even though I read it when I was about 12 or 13 and completely unaware of what my sexuality was. I didn't understand anything about myself in that respect. So the protagonist of this book is a teenage girl named Stevie. I think she's about 12, maybe 12 or 13 when we meet her. She's 17 by the end of the book. And towards the end of the book, Stevie develops a huge crush on her school nurse. Like she goes out of her way to see her, to be around her. And the book acknowledges textually that this is a, these are romantic and sexual feelings that Stevie is having. So I had so many crushes on my older female teachers growing up and I didn't really understand what they were, but I also understood them well enough to believe that there was something horribly wrong with me. Like mm. that, like no one else I knew had those feelings, nobody. Mm -hmm. And so I, I encountered Stevie and I was like, oh, oh, someone, someone is like me. I, I'm not the only one, right? Which is incredibly transformative. And I also think that Stevie was the first time that I ever truly identified with a black character, which mm -hmm. was so formative for me as a white kid in the late 90s. Identifying with her in that particular way really pushed back against a lot of the anti-black cultural messaging that I got that you know we all get to some degree, mm -hmm. and it really helped kind of de other black perspectives for me. Mm. It's beautiful. Also, it is pretty rad that you read this book about a uh, kid getting a crush on a teacher and then went on to become a teacher. That I am positive <laughs> queer the queer students. The Poor sapphic students in your class of all of the are, are, are just like also they're probably not doing as well as they do in their other classes honestly if i'm being 100 percent 
I will say I had a, a very awkward experience with that um, at one point where I had a student tell me, um, I had a student tell me at one point, this was after she'd graduated. Um, and she mentioned to me that being in my class, freshman, her first year of college, helped her realize that she was queer. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh, like, that's wonderful. Like, that's, oh, because I'm out to my students. It's really important mm-hmm. to me. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then I told my my then partner about it. And my partner said, you do realize she was saying she had a huge crush on you. And I went, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> I did not realize that at all. <laughs> oh, my God. You're like, I thought it was my openness, not my hotness. Turns out. Exactly. Turns out it was, exactly. it was reversed. <laughs> Um, okay, so my last book, my last book is um, Queer Theory, actually. And my last, so it's uh, a book by Sarah Ahmed called The Promise of Happiness. I want to say 2010-ish is when it was published. So Ahmed in this book does something that totally transformed the way that I think about queerness. She critiques the cultural imperative to be happy. This book asks us to challenge uh, assumptions that I think many of us have that we will be made happy by participating in the dominant cultural quote unquote good. But beyond that, to also consider what can come from unhappiness. So not to think about unhappiness as a thing that we shouldn't feel or that we should devalue or try to get past, but to think of it as something generative. Ahmed has this line in the book uh, specifically for queer people. And the line is, we must stay unhappy with this world. Effectively, in a world that is not happy with us, unhappiness produces things. If we are unhappy with what makes us unhappy, there is a core of really important honesty in that that can catalyze new ways of, of moving in the world. Like Effectively, the revolution will not come from happiness just like totally changed how I think about queerness and its relationship to happiness. And, and again, like as we've already talked about, you know, how critical queer joy is like Ahmed is absolutely not saying, Oh, queer joy doesn't matter. We shouldn't care. You know, of course she's not saying that, but if you make the goal to pursue happiness to the exclusion of all else, that is dangerous work because it disregards what power, what connections, what, what joy even can come from unhappiness. So cool. I ordered, so I had never read the last two of your books and I ordered them and I'm very excited. Excellent. Um, what's next? All right. I'll, I'll dive into albums cause I want to save poetry for last. Very cool. This was, this was the hardest one for me by far because I am much more of a song girly. I like, there are albums that are important to me, but songs are really where I, mm-hmm. I find my connection. Mm-hmm. So I had to think for a long time about this. So what I came up with, I picked Fiona Apple's 2020 album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And Mm -hmm. I I have to do a lot to explain why I picked this one. I knew I wanted to pick a Fiona album. I did know that. I have loved her since my sophomore year of high school. That was when I discovered uh, her, I think it's her second album, When the Pawn. I would argue that she is the best lyricist of the late 20th and early 21st century. I know that's like a big claim to make, but I would argue it. Um, I did think about listing When the Pawn here um, because it is maybe the most formative Fiona album for me. Mm-hmm. But you didn't ask that, right? You asked uh, what albums people should listen to in order to understand me. 
Mm-hmm. So Fetch the Bolt Cutters is an album that is really about growth. And I've done a lot of that in the last few years in both really joyful ways and really painful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a lot of cutting the bolts of things that are not serving me anymore. There's a lyric from When the Pawn uh, where Fiona sings, hunger hurts, but starving works when it costs too much to love. And there's a really important rejoinder to that uh, in Fetch the Bolt Cutter. She says, I spread like strawberries. I climb like peas and beans. I've been holding it in so long that I'm busting at the seams, which feels very much like a response to that, you know, hunger hurts, but starving works line. And I just feel like I'm really, I'm in my busting era. Like I am done with holding it in. I want to bust all over the place. I dig it. Yeah, no, I, so I went through and listened to all of these albums. Some of them I've heard a lot of it. Some of them I hadn't. And I was like, you know what? I don't, I'm not even going to write any questions or anything. I want to hear what, you know, what the connection is because it's very interesting. Um, Yes. Yes. To Fiona Apple. I don't think many people would argue with you on the lyricism claim. Uh, I dig it. Wrong people would argue with you. The people that would argue with you are wrong people. (laughs) Right. Fiona has the best description of generational trauma that I have ever heard in Mm. this album. And that is evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. Mm -hmm. Mm. Just amazing. It's familiar. I mean, of course you are. You're literally a literature professor of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Yes. I teach Millay. I love Millay. So if Fiona Apple wore a poet, that is the poet she would be. Yes. Oh God. I love that so much. Yes. Yes. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. It, yeah. You would actually really like Edna St. Vincent Millay. Me, Liz. Yeah, you, Liz. All right. <laughs> I mean, send me some stuff. I'll, I'll put it in my <laughs> Mary Oliver primer. All right. Good deal. Hell yeah. So the second album that I have is Hozier's Wasteland Baby. Uh, anyone who follows me on social media knows that I am incredibly into Hozier's music. I, I think he is one of the very few male artists who loves women in ways that remind me of how sapphics love women. Mm. Like he loves women like intensely worship, but he loves them with teeth. Like mm-hmm. he wants to give of himself, right? He wants to sacrifice himself for women. Mm-hmm. So I, I listen to him and I'm like, yeah, like Hozier gets it. Um, this particular album came out right after my wife and I transitioned from friendship into a romantic relationship. And I listened to it constantly. And of course, I thought about her because I was thinking about her cause I still I think about her literally all the time. Um, Hozier does tend to focus on loss. Like this album is very much about loss in a lot of respects, but I was going through the flip side of that at the time. But I really can't ever hear this album without all of the memories of that time in my life flooding back. Like it is intrinsically connected to this feeling of opening up. So even though the the, the album is about a lot of pain, it's also about joy coming mm-hmm. back to, I think what is pretty much a theme of this entire interview. Yeah. I love that so much. Um, I had read a review on this album specifically, and they were talking about how, yeah, a lot of the themes are like, whether it's, protest or um you know the world burning apocalypse there's one song and i forget which it is but he says something along the lines of you know the world is ending but the world ends every time that a boy and a girl fall in love 
Um, yes. And I think for you to kind of be experiencing like that falling in love yes, with that as like the background or the soundtrack yes. to it, it's still super powerful and yes. it tracks. Yeah. It really, at the time, really did feel like my old world was dying in the best possible way. And mm. I was kind of being born into this new world, right? Yeah. It felt totally cataclysmic. Also, Hosier is the son of the great Irish, sad boy Irish poets. He just simply is. Oh, yeah. 100%. So my last album is Carly Rae Jepsen's The Loneliest Time. I think Carly Rae Jepsen is criminally underrated. Uh, I think she is producing the most engaging pop music out there right now. Mm-hmm. I would include Taylor Swift in that, which I know is a blasphemous thing to say among sapphics. I really love a lot of what Taylor Swift does. I just think Carly Rae Jepsen is doing it on a totally different level. Um, Thank you. This album reminds me of myself, honestly. Uh, it's enthusiastic. It is mostly upbeat. It's whirl- a whirlwind. And it has a lot to say about a lot of things. I think one of the critiques that critics had of this particular album is it's like, it's all over the place. I'm like, no, that's the point. Mm-hmm. And so my all over the placeness, I think, really connects with what this album is doing. Yeah. I... Fully agree with the underrated statement because as me who hadn't like, yeah, you know, of course, when you think Carly Rae Jepsen, you think Call Me Maybe. And so I had never dove in. And then I saw that you listed this album. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to give it a listen. I was like, what? Why are Uh we listening to this more? (laughs) Great album. Fantastic album. We need more. We need more uh, CRJ. In our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the all over the place criticisms have come from male critics mm-hmm. um, almost exclusively. No, genuinely. And female critics, because I was reading about the criticism, have been like, yeah, dude. This yeah, is this is correct. And so I think yep. that's an interesting juxtaposition there, too. Agreed. Cool. All right. Let's get into some poetry. Oh boy, All right. you will have to restrain me on this um, because I don't know that I can fully restrain myself when I talk about poetry. So the first poem that I want to talk about is one that I've already mentioned, Elizabeth Bishop's poem, One Art. I want to say 1976. I should have written down the years for all of these because I do think that matters. So for those who are not familiar with this poem, um, it's a poem where the speaker insists that the art of losing isn't hard to master. That's probably the most well-known line from the poem. Uh, The speaker tells us about all of the things that they've lost. It starts with keys, and then it moves to an hour, to houses, to a continent, right? These losses keep getting bigger and bigger. But the speaker keeps saying, oh, no, it's fine, effectively. It's not fine. It's all right. Everything's fine. And then... The the lost thing at the very end in the last stanza is losing you. And it's something that is so painful that the speaker has to parenthetically tell themselves, write it. Got to write it. This is my all-time favorite poem. Um, I teach it every time I teach poetry. I never get sick of talking about it. This poem is fundamentally about repression, and it's about the point that repression breaks. Mm. And it's also so structurally interesting. I promise not to get too in, in the weeds about form, although I, I am a formalist. Uh, but the, the poem is written in a, a form that's called a villanelle, 
folks might be familiar with this from from Killing Eve. I'm sure that the character of Villanelle was named after the poem. So a Villanelle has a very particular rhyme scheme that I could go into. But what matters is that the rhyme scheme depends upon repetition, not just of rhymes, but of particular words. Um, So a Villanelle is used commonly to indicate obsession. So the structure of this poem tells you right away what we're in for. The speaker is saying, no, everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And you're reading this poem that is continually coming back to the subject of itself. So you know, this is not a reliable narrator. Um, I also love the shifting POV of this poem. So it starts off in third person, moves to first person, and then it ends in second person. So you've got this really increasing level of intimacy. And this poem is just so queer to me. It's not just because Bishop was a lesbian. It's that looking back on the experience of loss is really a fundamentally queer experience. I mean, obviously, non-queer people lose all the time, but I think loss is inextricable to the experience of being queer. There's a, a scholar named Heather Love who writes that the connection between queer love and loss has given queer people special insights into the possibilities and impossibilities of queer love in a world that does not value or see it. And that's how I read this poem. Wow. Was it an inspiration for Loser of the Year? So I didn't realize that until literally when I was thinking about, you know, how I might talk about the book on this particular podcast, thinking about talking about Bishop. And then I went, oh my God. I wrote I wrote a book that is effectively trying to do what Bishop did. Uh, so yes, it 100% was inspiration. And I did not realize that until literally a few days ago. I love when that happens. You're like, right? oh, this impacted me in so many ways, but also this way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Cool. So cool. All right. What was next? Next poem is Rita Dove's flirtation. I want to say 1983 or thereabouts. And it's a poem that is about the sense of possibility when you first connect with someone romantically, those kind of first early stages, maybe the limerence of it. And the most stunning use of imagery in in this poem, this is another poem that I teach, um, and I always love teaching it. So one of the images, and I think it's okay for me to quote this, I think it's within fair use, is an orange peeled and quartered flares like a tulip on a Wedgwood plate. Mm. And I love, I love the sense of beauty in that. And I love how Dove pairs the artificial with the natural, the natural orange, the artificial Wedgwood plate. And I also love an orange can be both sweet and tart, right? It just feels like a wonderful way of describing this sense of possibility um, a bit when you're starting something new with someone. And again, to bring in form, the, the structure of this poem is brilliant. It's uh, in couplets, which are two line stanzas until the very end when there is a single line, which is called a monostitch. So we are invited to think of this poem as about two people in a lot of respects, hence the couplets, the two. But the final line has to be on its own because this poem is really about the speaker. It's about the speaker's feelings. It is not about a shared connection. And I didn't realize that until maybe like the fifth or sixth time I've taught it. And I just kind of like, oh, 
this is not a poem about the experience of being in love with someone where you're connecting and it's entirely mutual. This is like, this is a, a poem about, wow, it feels really great to be at the beginning of things. I also love form-wise that this poem feels flirtatious, where yes. she ends lines and where she begins lines and the pauses and the structure is really, yeah. it feels like flirting. Like I'm going to give does. you something, a wait, and then a response. Yeah. And then I'm going to give you something, yes. a wait, and, and it builds and it builds and it builds to the mm-hmm. moment when you have that last line and you're like, oh, this is fully yes. about her internalized almost romanticized a view of what it is to fall in love. Exactly. Yeah, so, so good. And another reason why I really love teaching it is something that I've worked really hard to try to do as a white professor is not to only include uh, writers of color when we are talking about racism or related issues. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I do do that. But Rita Dove is a Black woman, and she wrote this incredible poem about flirtation. And it matters to me to make sure that my students are exposed to Black writers, to writers of color who um, are not just talking about the pain of racism effectively. Absolutely. And then my last poem is Carl Phillips' Since You Ask. I'll say right at the start, I am not going to try to summarize this poem because I think that summary fails entirely what this poem is aiming to do. Carl Phillips is my favorite poet, hands down. If I had to, I mean, it's, I, there's a lot of poets I love. And I said before, Bishop wrote my favorite poem, but Phillips is my favorite poet. Mm. I will never teach his poetry. He is the one poet whose work I do not want to unpack. Okay. I, I love analysis. I love it. I will always fight for it. Analysis often does so much wonderful work to make things more beautiful, more meaningful. But in some cases, it can also make the sublime harder to access. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just got to feel, not interpret. That's what Phillips taught me. Like mm-hmm. Sometimes you, you just got to be in a poem. You just got to feel it and not mm-hmm. think about structure, not think about what the poem is doing. Just let the language, the vibes, the experience wash over you. Mm-hmm. I will say there is a line from this poem that I think about all the time. Uh, and that line is, I'll shout the starlings loose from the pines again don't know what it is about that line. I don't know. I haven't interrogated it, but something about it just speaks to me so profoundly. Phillips is such a visceral poet too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way, so my favorite poet's Mary Oliver, but the poet I refuse to unpack is um, Gilbert. I just Ooh. simply, because I, I love his work so much, yeah. but for me, he writes the kind of poems that would be, I, I would lose what I love in the analysis. Yes. Hmm. It's Jack Gilbert, by the way. I should have said his first name. I love name. that. Yes. I, went, I went full literature. That's a fantastic choice. Those are amazing. Gosh, I love this so much. Okay. I have one silly question. Please. And then we will close down. But I just really have to know. So as we mentioned, Carrie's wife is a pretty prolific, very rad sapphic romance author. And so using Rosalind's characters, I just have to know. Oh, boy. Who would you want to be your girlfriend? Who would you want to be your wife? And who would you want to be your bang buddy? (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, this is so hard. Classic wife, girlfriend, bang buddy. Okay, girlfriend, wife, bang buddy. Oh, Mm -hmm. boy. So, yeah. So, who would you want to wipe up? Who would you like want to do life with for a while, girlfriendy? And then who would you just absolutely want to go to town with? Yeah. Oh, God. I think the wife one is going to be the hardest. (laughs) 
<laughs> Quite honestly. It's a commitment. It is. It is. Okay. So I'll start with Bang Buddy because I feel like that is the least level of commitment here. I'll go with Lori from TXI. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, which I feel All like right. is an answer most folks might not expect. I should have said the full name of the book. It's The X Ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, Lori is is the buxom blonde who uh, introduces uh, Diana Parker into a world of sapphic delights. Um, I think Lori's super, super hot. I love how take charge she is. So I would pick her for that. Um, girlfriend. You know she's going to get the job done. Like, you know <laughs> yes, you're going to exactly. have a good time. She is competent as hell. Mm-hmm. She is competent And as she hell. cares that you have fun too. Yes, for sure. Equally important. Okay, so for girlfriend, hmm, I think I'll say Vivian Carlisle and only... <laughs> Because, okay, for, I should say, I could never live with Vivian Carlisle. She would drive me absolutely batty. I just, I couldn't Not a living her. girlfriend. I, like, nope, not a living know, girlfriend. Maybe see each other I on wonder, weekends. I kind of want her to just be my sugar mama, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's sort of what I want, right? Mm-hmm. So so going out on the town, you know, we'd go to really nice restaurants, you know. Um, I'd love to dress to the... Exactly. She would look amazing on my arm. I would look amazing on her arm because I would dress myself to the nines. I love that kind of thing. Uh, so I think we can have fun. And then I would reach a point where I would be like, I cannot deal with you anymore. You are just too much for me. You don't talk about your feelings. I can't handle that. Like, mm, I'm done. Mm. And then for wife, okay, this is going to be an incredibly narcissistic answer for reasons I will explain to you in just a minute. Um, but I would pick Jules mm-hmm. from the Carlisle series as well. Um, and the reason why it's narcissistic is Jules is a lot like me, like in a lot of ways. Um, some of which are intentionally written in there. I won't specify what, uh, but Rosalind included a lot of details uh, in terms of jewels that are things from my own life and my own personality. Um, so I, I just and I just love jewels. Like again, super narcissistic, but I just think she and I would vibe incredibly well. Mm-hmm. She's in, she's competent. She's hardworking. She's loving. She can talk about feelings really easily. She just has a lot of qualities that I would really appreciate if I had to pick a wife who was not Rosalind. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and for doing this podcast with us and being so generous with your ideas and your your knowledge. It's been such a gift to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This honestly, I mean, talking about queer joy, this has been an experience of queer joy. I, I am so appreciative of you inviting me on. Well, yeah. That's awesome. So um, I've learned so much. Gary, why don't you let people know where they can find you on the interwebs? Absolutely. My website is carriebird.com and my surname is spelled B-Y-R-D. And you can find me basically on every social media site uh, at birdrights, B-Y-R-D-W-R-I-T-E-S. It's hard for me to spell out loud, but I think I did it correctly. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter slash X, but I'm also on Instagram, Blue Sky, so on and so forth. And again, cannot stress enough, my favorite social media follow. It's brilliant top to bottom. Yes. Even the silliness is really smart. It's so Mm -hmm. good. So y'all, thanks again. We've really appreciated having you, Carrie. Have a good one. Have a good one. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.